Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Michael Gaze, MD, about the article, Clinical Epidemiology of Extubation Failure in the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Unit, a report from the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium, PC4, published in the November 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Gaze is an assistant professor and works as a cardiac intensivist in the Division of Cardiology, Department of Pediatrics and Communicable Diseases at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He also serves as the executive director of the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium. Welcome, Michael. Glad to have you here today. Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be on. Could you start by giving us some background to your study and what what led you to do this study? Absolutely. I think as most pediatric critical care providers uh, understand, and certainly in the field of pediatric cardiac critical care medicine, our ability to assess patients and their readiness for extubation in the intensive care unit is limited by several factors. So we wanted to first understand the epidemiology of extubation failure in our unit, in our, or in our unit structure in the pediatric cardiac critical care environment. And then we wanted to begin to understand what factors might be predictive of a higher likelihood of failed extubations for pediatric cardiac critical care patients. And then finally, we wanted to understand if there might be important center differences in the rate of failed extubation. And all of this is really designed to give us a better understanding of how to make decisions around individual patients that we care for. And then in the greater scheme to understand how we might improve quality uh, across participants in our quality collaborative PC4 so that we can improve on extubation practices and limit extubation failures as much as possible. And really the clinical and you know, healthcare system context for this is that we know from previous work that extubation failure is relatively common. We knew from our own data that between 10 and 15 percent of patients overall and uh, slightly higher in younger age groups are experiencing extubation failure at some point in their course if they're mechanically ventilated, and that the implication of failed extubation may be greater healthcare resource use and ultimately worse clinical outcomes. So there seem to be you know, a lot of reasons to undertake this study and a lot of reasons to try to understand extubation in the cardiac critical care environment further and to try to improve, to invest resources in improving quality. Tell us a little bit about the PC4. I'd be happy to. PC4 is a quality collaborative of hospitals providing cardiac critical care to children and young adults in North America. We started off in 2009 with five centers who received NIH funding to form a pediatric cardiac critical care consortium, and our initial goals were simply to create and measure benchmarks of quality amongst the group. We have expanded now to have 21 centers under contract with several more coming into the fold in the very near future. And the goal of the collaborative remains to collect data on all patients cared for in the pediatric cardiac ICU, to share data on outcomes and practice amongst participants transparently, and to use those data that have been collected to inform clinical decision-making and to improve quality both amongst our participants and to disseminate findings more widely so that all can benefit from the discovery. Well, what did you do in this study? 
So we queried our clinical registry and assessed all patients who were mechanically ventilated in the cardiac ICU or who had undergone cardiac surgery and had therefore been ventilated immediately before coming to the cardiac ICU. Some proportion of patients are extubated in the operating room, and we included these patients in our analysis, even if they were never on a ventilator in the ICU. So we looked at all patients in the database, both surgical and non-surgical patients, and we evaluated every episode of mechanical ventilation. And the goal was, again, to define the clinical epidemiology of extubation failure, which we defined as the need for reinsertion of an endotracheal tube within 48 hours of a planned extubation attempt. And we wanted to understand when patients failed extubation, if they failed, who those patients were, what characteristics of, um, that they had, both patient demographic and clinical characteristics, as well as characteristics of the ventilation course itself, specifically the time on mechanical ventilation prior to the extubation attempt. So we performed our analysis, including both patient and vent episode level factors, and we provide descriptive data on the epidemiology of extubation failure, and we identified time mechanically ventilated prior to extubation as an independent risk factor for extubation failure. And I can go into more detail on those findings as well. What we also did was we looked at center rates of extubation failure, and we reported in our study both the unadjusted as well as adjusted rates by center accounting for some patient factors that seem to be related to the likelihood of extubation failure so as to account for case mix differences between hospitals. What did you find? How frequent was extubation failure and were there clinical differences between those children who failed and those who didn't and differences between the centers and so forth? Absolutely. So why don't I start with the patient and vent level episode analysis, and then I'll speak about the center level differences. We performed, a, you know, a fairly standard analytic approach to first compare patients in a univariate comparison, those who had extubation failure and those who did not, as well as those episodes of mechanical ventilation that ended in success versus ended in failure, again, with the need for reintubation within 48 hours. We then combine findings from those analyses into one multivariable analysis. So on univariate comparisons, we found several factors that are related or are more prevalent in patients who fail extubation than in those who do not. And some of these, you know, are certainly what might have been expected beforehand and, you know, what might have been expected based on previous literature. So younger patients, those patients patients having higher complexity surgery if they were surgical patients, uh, patients with airway anomalies that were identified before the hospitalization. These patients were all more likely to have extubation failure than not. But once the univariate comparison, once the, the variables that were thought to be significant on univariate comparison were put into a multivariable model, we found that the only independent risk factor for extubation failure is the length of time ventilated prior to the planned extubation attempt. So the raw numbers suggest that for patients ventilated less than 24 hours, approximately 4% will have a failure upon extubation. 
that number jumps to 9% if you've been ventilated for 24 hours and to 13% if you've been ventilated for more than seven days. So certainly as the length of time on the ventilator increases, the likelihood increases about threefold from being ventilated less than 24 hours to being ventilated for longer than seven days. And that's quite consistent with some data from the general PICU population. So interestingly, several other factors that we that looked significant on univariate comparison fell out in the multivariable model, most notably the complexity of surgery that patients had undergone. And so what I think this tells us is that, you know, it's not necessarily the insult in the operating room or, you know, simply the procedure you undergo, but it really is sort of how that patient tolerates that procedure how quickly they can be taken off the ventilator after the operation that may be more impactful than, you know, sort of the complexity of their underlying disease and and the surgery itself. And that came as a surprise to to many of us, but I think it, you know, it, it bears further analysis in future studies to understand whether, you know, this is related to certain centers having a lower threshold for extubating more complex patients earlier after surgery, or whether this has more to do with individual patients and how they tolerate those given surgical procedures. So with regard to the center level differences, you know, this was an this is an area of a particular interest for us because it is so related to subsequent quality improvement efforts. Mm-hmm. So we first just analyzed the raw data. And you, one thing that I think you asked me is what's the overall rate of extubation failure? So the overall rate, if you look at all episodes of mechanical ventilation, is that 6% of all courses of mechanical ventilation will end in an extubation failure for this heterogeneous multi-institutional cohort of patients. If you look at the patient level from our own data, now this accounts for the fact that some patients would have multiple courses of mechanical ventilation in one hospitalization, somewhere around 10% of patients will have extubation failure. And if you look at neonates, that number moves up to about 12 to 15%. So it is something that happens relatively frequently and certainly in patients who are on a ventilator for what would be a prolonged period of time, you know, uh, close to a week, you know, that number is 13%. So we certainly identified some subgroups for whom this represents, you know, a much more likely clinical event. And we can talk, you know, certainly later about, you know, where we might go from that both clinically and scientifically. So when we looked at centers, we looked at eight, we had eight centers in our analysis who had contributed more than 20 patients to the cohort. And so we analyzed the extubation failure rates at those eight centers. And we saw pretty uh, remarkable variation between centers. The raw data suggest that, you know, the variation is about eightfold from around, you know, one and a half percent to around 11 percent. We then applied case mix adjustment, as I mentioned earlier, so that we accounted for differences in the population at the individual hospitals based on age and surgical complexity. We wanted to really look only at those factors that were independent of center practice. So while length of ventilation was an important risk factor, the only independent risk factor, that's also related to center practice. And so we tried to identify case uh, sort of practice independent variables. So adjusting for those practice-independent variables, we found that the rate of extubation failure ranged from about 1.1 to 9.8% across centers. So again, 
pretty significant variation. We did not make an attempt to calculate whether those differences were statistically significant because we feel that the sample sizes are still relatively small and the number of centers are relatively small. But it's certainly suggestive that there are some differences in you know, center performance around this metric and that perhaps there are practice differences which underlie it, given that we controlled for case mix factors. Hmm, interesting. Were you able to collect any data on how patients were assessed for readiness for extubation? You kind of alluded to that early on. So that's a great question. And, you know, it, we do not collect these type of data in our clinical registry, you know, kind of on an every patient basis. I think one of the important next steps here is to start to try to understand what practice differences may exist between the centers in the consortium and particularly between centers with low and higher rates of extubation failure. Because assuming this isn't related to case mix, as we've you know sort of seen in our own work, then the natural conclusion is that there may be differences between centers in the way that they assess patients for extubation readiness. Complicating that is that there might even be intra-center or you know between provider differences, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so teasing that out in the future, I think, is a really important next step. And so you know we have talked about further efforts to collect data that on a patient level that may give us more of a sense of what patients look like immediately before extubation attempts. And then to collect also some higher level center questionnaire data on approaches to extubation readiness, use of you know, monitoring devices that may be different amongst hospitals and that are part of the excavation readiness testing to begin to answer these questions. And the first step was certainly to say, does there seem to be variation? And, you know, I think as we confirm these findings in future analyses, we'll then take the next step to say what looks different between lower and higher performers with regard to center practices. I think a question which has sort of hovered out there for many years is, what is an acceptable extubation failure rate? Yes, this is certainly one of our favorite questions to discuss amongst our group, you know, certainly as we thought about this project and others. I guess there's an old adage between intensivists that if your extubation failure rate is zero, you're probably holding on, you're probably keeping patients on a ventilator for too long uh, on average. And one thing that we'd like to do in future analyses is to compare centers not only on their extubation failure rates, but also to compare them on their length of ventilation. Mm -hmm. Now, that's challenging in a heterogeneous group of patients who would have, you know, different expected lengths of ventilation. So, for instance, it's not as simple as saying, what's your median length of ventilation? Because as anyone listening would know, a patient who comes in and has an atrial septal defect repair is likely to be intubated for less than 24 hours, whereas a patient who has a Norwood operation is likely to be intubated for several days. And so we are currently working on methods to apply modeling that will allow us to understand sort of an observed to expected length of ventilation across a heterogeneous group of patients by center. Once we understand that better, we can compare that observed to expected length of ventilation with a center's extubation failure rates, and we can start to get at that question. Is this center achieving, you know, lower failed extubation rates at the expense of longer Mm -hmm. uh, observed ventilation times, or 
are the centers who are achieving lower failed extubation rates also achieving lower expected uh, lower observed ventilation times? If that's the case, that's the practice that you want to mm-hmm. to model your own practice after. And so um, I think that's an uh, you know a, a crucial next step is to put those two metrics together because certainly one would not want to you know try to achieve a lower failed extubation rate at the expense of many more ventilator days for their patients. And similarly, there probably is some acceptable rate of failed extubation if it means that on average, most patients are getting off the ventilator earlier and safely as a result of a comprehensive strategy. Do you know anything about the use of non-invasive ventilation either immediately following extubation as a transition or after some difficulty to try to prevent reintubation? Do you have that kind of information in your registry? Yeah, uh, another really important aspect to this whole line of research. And, you know, we chose to define extubation failure as the need for reintubation within 48 hours. Other authors have chosen to define extubation failure as the need for non-invasive ventilation as well as reintubation. And, you know, I think that in the current era uh, and the way that non-invasive ventilation is employed, that it's hard to call use of non-invasive ventilation a failure of extubation simply because we use non-invasive ventilation so that we can get patients off the ventilator. We mm-hmm. uh, we assume, uh, well, I'd say we don't know that that is a better strategy than leaving a patient on a ventilator for a bit longer to try to get them off without non-invasive. So we do collect data on the use of both continuous positive airway pressure and BiPAP as well as uh, high-flow nasal cannula. And we have an ongoing project right now to try to understand the use of non-invasive ventilation, you know, again, the, the clinical epidemiology and outcomes from this use across our participating centers. So hopefully we can be talking about that project one day on one of these podcasts. I think that we need to understand as part of this center-level strategy assessment is how are centers using non-invasive ventilation and how does that play into failed extubation rates, total time of uh, assisted ventilation, length of stay, and other resource use? Because it may be that some centers are quite effectively using non-invasive ventilation to lower their overall ventilation times and limit their extubation failures. Mm -hmm. We just don't have a good sense of that. So, and the data are there, and we are engaged in an active effort to start to characterize that. Ultimately, I think the study that one would want to do is look at, you know, when non-invasive ventilation is applied, be that uh, right at the time of extubation versus as a rescue therapy, and try to understand if there is a way to predict who would benefit from the use of sort of prophylactic non-invasive ventilation mm-hmm. versus a strategy where it's on, used on an as-needed basis and what is the appropriate approach in which patient subgroups. What are the consequences of a failed extubation? You have to reintubate a kid, you give him another day or two on the ventilator, take the tube out. What are the consequences of that? Right. So, you know, the previous literature would suggest that in you know, the general PICU population and even from some single center cardiac IC studies, that those patients who do fail extubation are likely to have worse clinical outcomes, higher mortality, greater ventilator length of stay, and ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay. And I mean, I don't think that comes as a surprise uh, to anyone. 
I think that what's hard to tease out is, is this related to their underlying disease process or is this really, you know, what is the actual impact of a failed excavation? And I don't think we, we don't know that quite yet. We do confirm in our study that patients who do fail extubation have all of those same differences in outcome as you compare them to those patients who do not have failed extubation. So, for example, in our population, patients who failed extubation had a longer IC length of stay, 15 days versus 3 days, hospital length of stay, 24 days versus 7 days, and higher in-hospital mortality, 8% versus 1% compared to those who did not. All of those are statistically significant. Mm-hmm. We haven't yet tried to quantify the impact of a failed extubation, accounting for all of the other patient and disease characteristics. But I think good sound judgment and experience would say that some of this is related to probably worse underlying disease, Mm -hmm. and some of it's directly related to, you know, the consequences of a failed extubation, staying on a ventilator for a longer time, probably having longer-term vascular access, and, you know, all of the sequelae of of having to remain in a, you know, sort of a critical care state. Mm -hmm. So what are the implications of your data that you presented for our current management of children in the cardiac intensive care unit? Well, I think that, you know, a couple important lessons have been learned. Number one, you know, we saw that patients who have extubation failure, while most occur in the first 24 hours, there is a significant portion that occur between 24 and 48 hours. And again, we don't understand exactly what the reasons for that are if those patients were maintained on non-invasive ventilation and thus we, you know, sort of prolong the decline in respiratory status. But I think it suggests that great vigilance needs to remain, you know, even after one gets past the first, you know, say six to 24 hours from an extubation attempt. I think we've learned that for patients who are ventilated for longer than seven days, the rate of extubation failure is high enough to suggest that we may need different ways of assessing extubation readiness in those patients than we do in those who've been ventilated for a much shorter time. And I think most intensivists probably do this already. They may have a more rigorous set of criteria for which patient that they know inherently is at higher risk of extubation a more rigorous set of criteria for them to achieve before they would Mm -hmm. undergo a planned extubation. But I think we need to really critically identify in our own centers and in our own practice how much different is that. So I think it's also interesting to note that even after being on the ventilator for just 24 hours, the rate of extubation failure goes up. It basically doubles from, you know, 4 to 9%. So in our field, And at our center at the University of Michigan, we have spent the last couple of years really trying to adopt approaches to get patients off the ventilator as soon as possible, particularly after surgery. And I think these data speak to the fact that just remaining on a ventilator for longer than 24 hours probably poses more risk to a patient, both around extubation failure and probably in other ways. And so I think, you know, some of this, again, has to be related to underlying disease process and the need to stay on a ventilator for more than 24 hours. But some of it is probably related to just being on a ventilator. And so earlier and earlier extubation attempts should be the goal if it, if it can be proven to be done safely. 
And we did look at very early extubation from the operating room in our in our cohort and saw that the rate of failed extubation for those patients extubated in the cardiac operating room was only about 3%. So I think it speaks to the fact that this practice can be done safely with a low risk of uh, failed extubation. And, you know, certainly the data around time on the ventilator and rate of extubation failure based on that suggests that the earlier we get these patients off, the better for them. And then finally, it's what we've talked about a lot around the center rates and the balance between failed extubations and time on the ventilator. And while, you know, we can't draw any conclusions about practices that will lead to lower extubation failures, I think every center, whether they're a cardiac critical care center or probably even a general PICU, should be trying to evaluate how their failed extubation rate looks in comparison to expected ventilation times and uh, start to under try to figure out for themselves where that critical balance is and what's acceptable, you know, where the risk-benefit calculus comes out in favor of earlier and more aggressive extubation strategies. So it sounds like your next steps are looking at what are the differences across centers and then trying to identify are there best practices, obviously trying to get the child extubated as early as possible is one, but are there other practices that we should be implementing to try to prevent the need for reintubation? That's exactly right. And, you know, I think you gave a nice summary of exactly what we're trying to do within PC4, which is identify the high performers, identify what practices drive that high performance so that we can then disseminate it amongst the group and more widely to the pediatric critical care community. And I think just anecdotally, one thing we've learned through another collaborative improvement effort through the Pediatric Heart Network which is a uh, network of hospitals who perform heart surgery and has recently been focused on an early extubation project, is that while the intensivist may be the one standing by the bedside when the tube gets pulled and the one who says ultimately extubate this patient, there's so much more that goes Mm -hmm. into the care of a patient vis-a-vis intraoperative management, analgesia and sedation, and it takes a very coordinated effort amongst all the professionals who are caring for these patients in the ICU to create an environment where patients can be extubated early and safely. Well, this is a a tremendous project, and I will look forward to the additional suggestions and data that you bring back to the pediatric critical care community. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? No, I would just, you know, like to thank the Society of Critical Care Medicine for publishing our work and giving us an opportunity to talk about it on this podcast. And we hope to, um, you know, be doing a lot of that in hopes to inform both the cardiac critical care community as well as, as a general pediatric critical care community. So thanks a lot for the opportunity. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. We have been speaking with Dr. Michael Gaze from the University of Michigan about the article Clinical Epidemiology of Extubation Failure in the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Unit, a report from the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium, PC4, published in the November 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. 
visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, M.D., MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.